Thanks, Dave. You can turn with me again this week. We are continuing our series in Galatians, and we are finishing chapter 3. So you can turn with me to chapter 3, beginning in verse 26. You can turn there with me right now. Before we do that, um, let's just turn to God in prayer. Lord, we want to turn our hearts to you intentionally now, to turn our focus to you, Lord. We, we've, we've sung your praises, and we, we sing content, Lord, that's, that's theologically driven by your word. We want to sing songs like that. And also, Lord, we want to, we want to live lives that reflect your word. And so in order for that to happen, Lord, we need your help, we need your assistance, we need your word to come alive in us. And you promise that that's what you do in the preaching of your word, Lord, that your, your word is truth, Lord, that your word is effective. And so, God, we come before you and we ask, make us alive, attune us to your truth. Help us to work through the clutter. Help us to work through the false things that we, we've taken in in the previous week. Help us to see clearly the nature of your gospel, the nature of Christ and all that he is for us, and to see it in this text. And then, Lord, help us to live in light of that truth. In your name, Jesus. Amen. Well, we are looking this morning at the final verses of chapter 3. Last week, we considered the different purposes of the law and the promise. You remember, as we were looking and working our way into Galatians, we saw Paul laying out for us the way that the promise and the law work together, but differently. Remember the, the case he's making for justification before God, that it's impossible through works of the law. He laid this out for us at the beginning of Galatians 3. We're made right with God only through faith in Christ. Well, entrusting ourselves to Christ, Christ crucified, raised, and enthroned, is our only hope of salvation. And then, and then he begins to tease out how are the law and the promise different, yet working together. Remember that last week we talked and we looked and we saw that the law was given that we might be imprisoned to sin, that we might see the futility of seeking justification in our own strength. And the promise is given to give life. Well, now he shows us in the concluding verses of this chapter, three specific benefits that are ours as believers because of justification by faith. So he's going to lay out three things. And this doesn't to say that these three things are the only benefits that we have and we receive because of justification. But these are three specific things that Paul wants to turn our attention to, to understand and grasp. These are implications. These are benefits that we receive specifically through the vehicle of faith. So with that in mind... Look with me now at Galatians 3, verse 26 and following. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Now, I said we're going to see three specific benefits that are ours that we receive through the means of justification by faith. And that's exactly what Paul lays out for us here. And so those are quite simply our three points this morning. First thing we see as we understand the implications he's been building towards in all of chapter 3 is that by faith we are sons of God. Now, if justification is accomplished by the law, we'd really be functionally more like God's employees than His children. We'd be wage earners. At the end of the day, we'd receive the reward that we had earned. But the gospel offers us something far greater. In Galatians 3.7, remember, Paul made the connection that by faith, we are sons of Abraham. Remember as he walked us through that, that strange declaration that it's, it's not just the circumcised who get to call themselves Abraham's offspring, but it's anyone who has faith. They get to be in that category. Remember, we, we made the argument, we showed through the text, that the blessings of God flow through Abraham. 
God in Genesis makes promises to Abraham, and those promises that are meant to be a blessing to his creation and to his redeemed people will come through our connection with Abraham. Well, he, he makes that point, and he promises then that those blessings don't come to us by works of the law, but by faith. Remember, he says, remember, Abraham receives the promise before circumcision. He receives the promise by believing. In fact, it was counted, he was counted righteous by faith. So to have access to all these benefits, you have to be a part of Abraham. That happens by faith, not by circumcision. And just as Abraham believed God, so his children come in the same way. That's the argument Paul's been laying for us and building in chapter 3. Well, then he argued that the one true offspring of Abraham was Christ. That all this talk of offspring, and offspring as multiple as the stars, was foreshadowing Jesus. Remember walking through that. Well, now Paul this morning completes the logic. Galatians 3.26, he says, For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. The capstone of his argument that he's been building to you all chapter long is that by faith, we aren't just Abraham's children. We're God's children. The gospel promises that by faith and faith alone, we are adopted into God's family, the pinnacle of a person's identity. When we, when we think in these terms, we think of, who are you? Well, the pinnacle of a person's identity, in a lot of ways, is really, who is your father? There's a lot that's wrapped up in the identity you receive from your father. And that's what Paul's pointing us to in this text. For the believer, faith seals the papers of our adoption. Faith makes God our father. Now, remember, last week we saw that the law was the pedagogue. It's that, that guardian. It treats us as adolescents, as minors. It, it protects us. It shows us what to do, and then it punishes us when we fail to do it. Well, with the coming of Christ, we're no longer minors. We're no longer adolescents. Paul is saying, We've reached adulthood, and with the coming of Christ, with the reaching of adulthood, we're now sons and daughters of God. We're full heirs of the promise. We enjoy all the status, all the privilege, and all the rights of the kingdom. Now, the link between justification by grace through faith and our, shun and our sonship, our adoption, is expressed profoundly all over the New Testament. This isn't just Paul's idea here. I don't assume that you think it's just Paul's idea, but there are times when people will take Paul and they'll sort of pit him against Jesus. And specifically, they'll say, you know, where in the Gospels do you see Jesus talking about justification by faith? Where does he use this language that Paul's using? Is, is Paul an innovator here? Is he off track with, with where Jesus is? Well, he's not. If, if we read the Gospels correctly, we see the way that they sit together and stand together. Along with that, one of the things that shows us that most clearly are the parables. Specifically, the parable of the prodigal son. Now, I'm sure most of you are familiar with the story, correct? The prodigal son comes to his father. He's the younger son. There's two sons. And the father is meant to represent God. Well, the prodigal son comes before the father and he says, I want my inheritance now. I want all of it up front. And I'm leaving. Which, in that day and age, is basically like coming to your father and saying, basically, I wish you would hurry up and die. I wish you were already dead. Give me what I would receive if you were dead, and then I'm going to go off and live as if you are dead. That's what you mean to me. I mean, in the cultural milieu of, of the Bible, for a son to do that, the father is completely justified to turn and say, no, you're dead to me. Leave with no inheritance. Well, in the parable... The father gives the younger son his inheritance. He sends him off, and we know the son goes out, and he spends and wastes his inheritance recklessly. He takes all the treasures of the father, he takes the father's good name, and he pollutes it. Comes to the end of his means. Remember, he's sitting in a pigsty, longing to eat the food of the pigs. And thinks to himself, even 
Even the servants in my father's household eat better than this. And so the young son decides, I'm going to return. He sees how bankrupt his lifestyle is, and he decides he's going to come back to the father. Now, this is where the story and the connection between Paul's understanding of justification by grace through faith is seen vividly in what Jesus taught us. When the young son returns, we could expect the father to respond to the son's request, just make me a hired hand, essentially. Just make me one of your servants. And the father could respond to that with hesitation. Maybe. Well, let's wait and see how you do. Remember, this, this son basically told the father, you're dead to me. That would be an acceptable way for the father to respond. The son knows he's wronged the father. He knows he doesn't even have the right to even assume the status of a servant. He's basically begging, just, just make me a wage earner in your household. Now, if works is the route to justification, if works is the way that we gain a favorable judgment from God, this is exactly what we should see happen, right? The father says, granted, come into the household, be a servant. Earn your way back into my good graces. If the law is the path to God's acceptance, a detailed track record of merit and demerit is essential. Prove yourself to me, son, and then you can return. Work off your debt, and then I'll forgive you. Instead, Jesus paints a picture of extravagant grace prodigal is not put on probation. He's not made a servant. The response to all of his shameful actions is uninhibited welcome. It's a renewed status as a true-born son. The initiative in the story flows from God's grace. The son desires scraps. The father imparts full, unrestrained reconciliation, redemption, and blessing. The son's only role is to receive the gift that is given. He's repented. Now he need only believe in the goodness and forgiveness of the Father. He's not the only son, though, is he? The older son is infuriated by this. He operates mentally in a totally different way in what it means to gain favor from his father. He's so concerned with working for the father's approval that he completely fails to enjoy the benefits of of being a son that are already his. He's not just enraged that the younger son gets to come back and is, is welcomed back into the household. He's so obsessed with the fact that he's always done the right thing. He's always worked hard. He's always been the good son. And he's completely oblivious to the fact that he enjoys all the blessings of being a son already. Remember the father says, all that I have is yours. Can't you see it? Paul writes in Romans 8.3, For God has done what the law, weakened by faith, could not do. By sending His own Son in likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. And he makes this connection with the Spirit. Verse 14, For all who are led by the Spirit are sons of God. The younger son embraces the undeserved restoration and rejoices that once again he is a child of the king. The older son continues to work, continues to work in the weakness of the flesh to prove his sonship through rule keeping. A sonship that would be his if he simply believed in the goodness and the generosity of his father. It's both breathtaking and bizarre. The gospel declares for all eternity that what we long for most, that what we crave deeply is true, that the maker of all creation loves us and desires us, that the high king of heaven has not only redeemed us by faith, but that he's made us his children. That in the gospel, because of faith, we are children of the king. 1 John 3, 1 says, See what kind of love the Father has given to us, 
that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The Spirit in Romans 8.16 Himself bears witness with our spirit. We are children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. The first benefit of justification by faith is that there is the seal of adoption. God looks at us and views us as His true heir, Jesus. The benefits don't stop there. Galatians 3 goes on to say, For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. The point he's making now is it's not just that by faith we are sons of God, but also that by faith we're united to Christ. Luther put it this way, But to put on Christ, the language of our text in the Gospel, is not a matter of imitation. In other words, be like Jesus, what would Jesus do, sort of stuff. But of a new birth and creation. To put on Christ in the Gospel is not to put on the law and works, but an inestimable gift, namely the remission of sins, righteousness, peace, consolation, joy in the Holy Spirit, salvation, life, and Christ Himself. Luther and Paul are both talking about the glorious, underappreciated reality of our union with Christ that at first glance seems a little bit strange in the way Paul talks about it. He's saying, if you first read the verse, almost like we're united with Christ because we're baptized, right? Doesn't it kind of look like what the verse says? You, you go back and you read it and it says, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ put on Christ. Is Paul saying that you have to be baptized in order to be united to Christ? Is baptism the means of our union to Christ? Well, a closer look brings clarity. First, we have to understand baptism in the New Testament is always by immersion. It's this symbolic action that gives us a vivid image of what it means to put on Christ by placing our trust in Him. It's a visible testimony to our spiritual uniting to Him in His death and His resurrection. That's what baptism is meant to symbolize. Now, Paul can talk in this kind of strange way of saying, everybody who's been baptized into Christ is now united with Him. He can talk in that way because everyone who's baptized in Christ in the New Testament had to have faith first. There's no category in the New Testament for someone being baptized prior to having faith. Faith always precedes baptism, but it goes even further. There's no category for infant baptism in the New Testament. Everybody gets baptized post-conversion, post-faith. And here's the kicker. In the New Testament, everyone gets baptized. And that can be a little bit different for us. We live in a day and age when some people baptize infants and other people believe you need to be baptized after faith. But, you know, I believed seven years ago and I've never gotten baptized. So now I feel like I need to. You heard folks talk like that. I knew a lady who, for some strange reason, was totally resistant to being baptized at the age of 50-something odd years. Couldn't really give a reason, but just didn't want to be baptized. That's a notion completely unheard. That's a total anomaly in the New Testament. Everyone believes first before they're baptized. And in the New Testament, everyone who is a believer is baptized. An unbaptized Christian is unheard of. So the connection temporally between conversion and baptism is so close together. They happen so close together in time that you can really speak of them almost synonymously. That's really how people experienced it. You believed, and then you were baptized. Believe, baptized. Profess faith, baptism. That's how those things work together. You think of the story of the Ethiopian eunuch. It's indicative of this. Remember the story in Acts? Ethiopian eunuch is, is riding along in his chariot. It's really a pretty cool chariot. He works in, in the queen's court. And he's reading, reading the Old Testament. He's confused. And Philip gets carried along and sees him and comes and begins interpreting the Old Testament for him and explaining to him that everything he's reading is about Jesus. And it says that the eunuch, the Ethiopian eunuch, believes. He has faith. And what's his response? He turns to Philip and says, as they're riding in the chariot, which is kind of an interesting image. I mean, 
I don't know what that's like to ride in a chariot with, with scrolls, looking at the Old Testament. You're trying, I mean, that's got to be a challenging, challenging opportunity to witness to somebody, right? They're riding along, and he sees water, and he turns to Philip, and he says, what's stopping me from being baptized? Philip looks at him and says, nothing. <laughs> so they stop, they pull over, they go to the water, and he's baptized. Belief, baptism. They're so concurrent, it's remarkable. It's like an old school Southern Baptist saying, I got saved when I went forward for the altar call. That doesn't actually mean the altar call saved the person, right? Why were you saved? Because of the altar call. The altar call was the means of my salvation. No, you're just saying, I went forward at the altar call, and that's when salvation happened. It's just an expression that that talks about them that's happening so closely in time that you can almost say they're synonymous. It's essentially what Paul is saying about baptism and our union with Christ. Baptism doesn't save us, it doesn't unite us to Christ, but the events are so temporally synonymous, they're so close together, and baptism is such an absolutely fundamental part of what it means to be a Christian in the New Testament, that he can say, everyone who's been baptized has put on Christ. Why? Because everyone who has faith in his worldview will obviously be baptized. You could say, if faith is sort of the thing that seals your adoption papers... Baptism is a point where you actually get to hold them. The court gives you the papers to take home. It's the proof. So what does it mean to say that we've put on Christ? What is, what is he meaning by that? If it's not that baptism is the means to it, but faith, which is obviously so synonymous with baptism in this time set, what does it mean when he says that we've put on Christ? What's, what's he mean by this idea of one of the benefits of justification by faith is that we're united with Christ? Well, it's a huge deal. John Murray wrote that union with Christ is the central truth of the whole doctrine of salvation. It's not simply a phase of the application of redemption. It underlies every aspect of redemption. If you're to understand justification correctly, Calvin would say, you have to understand union with Christ correctly. In fact, our adoption flows from and is dependent upon our union. Does that make sense? The fact that we get to consider ourselves children of God, that we're sons and daughters of God, only happens because we are united to Christ. We're sons of God because we're united to the Son of God. We enjoy the inheritance of Christ because we have communion with the Inheritor through our union. Does that make sense? There's an essential relationship between justification and our union with Christ. In justification, remember, we receive things that are alien to us. Remember we talked about this? The righteousness that we receive in justification, when God declares acquitted, and in justification He's declaring Not just that you're innocent, but that you're righteous. Remember that? Well, the righteousness that we receive, that declaration, it's not ours, is it? It's Christ's. Luther would talk about it being an alien righteousness. The holiness that gets imputed to our account in justification. It's not my holiness. I'm not getting justified because I've been holy. That's a Catholic understanding. No, this is an alien holiness. This is Jesus' holiness imputed to my account. It's, it's an outward holiness. But our union with Christ brings all of the benefits of Christ inward. In fact, it has to. While our holiness and redemption and obedience and righteousness are all alien and outside of us in justification, so that they belong to Jesus. He puts them, puts them on us like a robe. They're located in the person and work of Christ. But they need to be brought near to have any benefit to us. Calvin, I think, explains this really well. First, we must understand that as long as Christ remains outside of us, we are separated from Him. All that he has suffered and done for the salvation of the human race remains useless and of no value for us. Therefore, to share with us what he has received from the Father, to give us his inheritance, he had to become ours and dwell within us. For this reason he is called our head and the firstborn among many brethren. 
we also in turn are said to be engrafted into Him and to put on Christ. For as I have said, all that He possesses is nothing to us until we grow into one body with Him. It is true that we obtain this by faith. See the significance? Union with Christ takes all of these outward things that Christ has purchased for us on the cross that are alien to us, and through His uniting to us, they're brought inward. Not that we suddenly become righteous in and of ourselves, but because Christ indwells us, there is an inward nature to the benefits of salvation. There is an inward nature now to all that He's achieved for us in terms of salvation. Through faith, we're united to the One who deserved the verdict we received. So when the righteousness or obedience or holiness is ours, Christ is ours. In describing our union with Christ, the New Testament uses two compatible expressions. We are in Christ, and Christ is in us. Paul expresses them both here. In verse 27 he says, Put on Christ. In other words, Christ is in you. He also says in verse 28, we are all one in Christ Jesus. In other words, we are in Him. The enormity of this truth can't be overstated. In our union with Christ, Jesus has cleaved all the blessings and inheritance to us. He's brought them as near as is possible. To have become ours, all those blessings have become ours, because Jesus has become ours. We possess Him, and we commune with Him, and we are eternally united with Him. That's why Jesus can say that strange thing to disciples, it's better for you that I go away. It's better for you that I'm not here physically, because through the grace of conversion, you're going to be united to me in a fellowship and a bond that far exceeds anything you could know if I was still here. You need me to leave so the Spirit will come So that as you're baptized with the Holy Spirit, He will baptize you into Christ Jesus. So that as Jesus reigns in heaven from the right hand of God, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, the way Colossians and Peter talk about it, every blessing in the spiritual places is made ours in Christ. Because the Spirit makes Him inward. Faith is God's gift to us. That from spiritual death, we're made alive. That through this gift, we're not just connected to the vine but we're nourished and we're ripened it unites us not only to Christ in his death but to Jesus in his resurrection to Jesus as already raised as already experiencing the joy of new creation that will one day be ours Owen puts it this way the saints delight is in Christ it's union with Christ language He, Jesus, is their joy, their crown, their rejoicing, their life, food, health, strength, desire, righteousness, salvation, blessedness. Without Him, they have nothing. In Him, united to Him, they shall find all things. God forbid that I should glory, save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. He has, from the foundation of the world, been the hope, expectation, desire, and delight of all believers. When Owen talks about our communion with Christ in that way, he's talking about the communion that we have with God in Christ because we've been united to Him. The implication of this union is the newfound uniformity of access we have with God. Does that make sense? One of the things that happens to us is justification by faith means you never have to perform to be in God's house. Remember we talked about the parable of the prodigal son. Jesus showing this extravagant, prodigal grace of God. Remember we gave you that book a few weeks ago, Prodigal God by Tim Keller. That book unpacks the significance of this parable beautifully. Well, justification by faith shows us One of the benefits that we receive is we become children of God. We we become co-heirs with the Son of God, Jesus. This happens to us. We become sons of God. We are heirs of God. 
We're considered God's children because we've been united to Jesus. That's why we get those benefits. Because as the Spirit indwells us, the Spirit brings Christ inward. The implication with this is that because it's through faith, that inward access to Jesus, that access to salvation, is now available to everyone. Consider Galatians 3.28. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. The third benefit that Paul draws out for us is that by faith, we experience and know an equality in Christ. That by faith, all people, regardless of the distinctives and characteristics of who they are, black, white, Indian, rich, poor, slave, free, male, female, regardless of who you are, you have access to salvation in Christ. Access to being a child of the King. Access to being united with the High King of Heaven through faith. The point is that through faith, there is equal access in salvation. So, possession of the law and circumcision, they're not necessary. The Jews thought that way. You want to have salvation. You've got to have the law like we've got the law, and you've got to get circumcised. And so that's why in Galatia, they're saying, it's great that you believe in Jesus. Now go get circumcised, and you'll really be saved. Being Jewish, Paul says, is of no more value than being Greek. Because there's an equality of faith. A bondservant, a slave, can believe as easily as the master. A woman can know the same saving access that a man can. Now that's a radical statement in Paul's day. A woman can be saved in the same way as a man. If she believes. So, you know what? If, if your husband is the prodigal son without returning, you don't have to sit there and think, my household is cursed. You've got access to salvation in Christ through faith. You have hope. Paul can talk to believing women with unbelieving spouses and offer them hope in Christ because there's equal access in salvation that we see in this text. Now this also means that, remember all the context that's going on here? Remember the story that Paul lays out for us the end of chapter 1 and chapter 2? You've got Peter in Galatia, and for a while he's fellowshipping with Gentile Christians. So a bunch of uncircumcised people, members in the church, who love Jesus. Peter's over at their house. He's eating bacon with them. He's trying pork chops for the first time. Maybe even having some king crab. That's what Peter's doing. He's really enjoying it. They're experiencing a fellowship in Christ they're meant to experience. And then this element comes in and begins saying, no, 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 Peter. You can't relate with them in that way. Well, when Peter and Barnabas and the Jerusalem Christians withdraw from table fellowship, withdraw from sharing the bacon, when they pull back from these culturally different Christians, they're essentially saying to the Gentiles, you're second class. In fact, I don't even really know that you are a class of Christian at all yet because you're not Jewish. It's really, if you think about it, a first century version of Whites only from the segregated South. We don't drink from the same fountains as you. We won't eat in the same restaurants as you. You can't sit on the same part of the bus as us. You can't use the same doors as us. It kind of brings what's going on in Galatians home a little bit, doesn't it? That's what they're doing when they say, Peter, you can't eat with them. They're below us. They're Gentiles. Peter's actions violated the unity of the church. They insulted the cross of Christ. Peter, there's no doubt from what we see in the text, seems to be attempting to preserve unity. 
he gets that there's people really ticked off that he's hanging out with the wrong crowd, that, that he's, he's crossing cultural barriers that shouldn't be crossed. And so there's pressure from Jewish Christians, from the Jewish community, withdraw. And he's probably thinking, if I withdraw, I'll preserve peace. Paul saw it differently. He saw it more accurately. The dangerous thing was not to eat with Gentiles. This is the kind of living the gospel produces. The danger was to keep the peace through racial separatism or segregation. These actions were utterly out of step with the gospel. Remember he charges Peter with that? You're acting out of step with the gospel. What you're doing in separating yourself racially, what you're doing is challenging the heart of the gospel itself. In Paul's mind, it's not that Peter's theology is wrong. It's that his actions are out of step with his theology. Peter Peter knows better, and Paul knows that he knows better. He calls him on it in Galatians. He says, hey, you were eating with them. I've heard about your experience, the vision you had, the experience you had with Cornelius. I heard about the testimony you came back and gave to the church, that the Gentiles have received salvation. They've received the Spirit in the same way that we have. I know that you know better, Peter. You're not believing falsely, you're acting falsely. He writes in Romans 3.29, Is God the God of Jews only? Is He not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. Since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Now, this is relevant for providence. Overland Park, Kansas wasn't really the heart of the segregated South, right? I grew up in northwest Iowa in a community so homogenous we thought somebody half German was unique. That's not an exaggeration. I spent 10 years in Minnesota where it's all Scandinavians. Everybody's blonde-haired and blue-eyed and named Lars. But this still comes home to us. It still has relevance. It had relevance in Iowa where I grew up. It had relevance in Minnesota. And it has relevance here. Bleeding Kansas is a history of blood dealing with racial issues. It's a border feud that boils over, tied closely to the struggle over racism in our country. That's not new information to you, right? I mean, you watch Missouri and Kansas play, and they pull up those sorts of themes, right? But while we might live in the quote-unquote free state, our church is located in the heart of Johnson County. Anybody know who Johnson County is named after? Thomas Johnson, a Methodist missionary. Somebody who's bringing the gospel. He's also one of the main proponents of slavery in the state of Kansas. One of the main men working to ensure that Kansas would be not the free state that it ended up, but a slave state. We live in the county that's named after him. You can even trace that to the affluence of our neighborhoods in this area. Historically, Johnson County starts to grow right after Brown versus the Board of Education. In other words, white flight hits Kansas City, Missouri when they say, you need to educate your kids with the black kids because there's no such thing as separate but equal. In which case, people pull up stakes, fly to the suburbs, and establish homeowners associations. So I can make sure that the only people using my pool look like me. That's our heritage. That's what we live in. That's what we've inherited. Trayvon Martin's death, that's a huge thing in the news. If you've seen the news the last couple weeks, it's all over the place. It just shows the racial divide, the racial tension in our country is still raw. It's still deep. It's still complex. 
that's just a, a brief little overview of where we sit in our little located history in Kansas, Missouri, and Johnson County. And that's so overly simplified for the details that are there. Here's the thing we see with Peter. Racism isn't always about being a racist. Peter's not a racist. He, he is willing to have relationship with these people. He's not a racist. But he gets caught up in racist activity. Racism can also be a part of being a silent majority, of sitting idly by while other human beings are treated as second class. Treated as second class because of the color of their skin, or their ethnicity, or their gender. Those are all sorts of isms that the gospel speaks against. Now, here's the thing. Paul's not denying in this text that there's such a thing as slave and free, right? He's not saying that we're no longer, that there's no longer such a thing as ethnic categories like Jew or Greek. That's not what he's saying when he says, there's no more Jew and Greek. We see that because he says the next thing is, there's no more male or female. He's not saying that all of a sudden there's no more genders. We're all just the same. That's what happens with the gospel. Everybody's human, generically. No, not at all. That's not Paul's point. He's speaking specifically to our standing of equality of access to Christ and salvation. The Messiah is not just a Jewish Savior. He's the Savior for all mankind. Here's the point. The Gospel doesn't flatten out differences. It redeems them. The Gospel doesn't create this vanilla cookie-cutter church. Everybody looks the same way, thinks the same way, is the same. No more male and female, we're just human. No. Those differences still exist. Where God's judgment at Babel scattered people into diverse languages, diverse peoples, and the result was strife, animosity between peoples and languages and cultures. God's redemption at the cross reunites the scattered. And it brings unity to the diversity. The cross regathers Adam's scattered offspring around the second Adam, Christ, without destroying their uniqueness. Racism is the fruit of rebellion against God. First, you turn against your Creator, and then you turn against each other. That's racism, that's classism, that's sexism, all of it. It's the fruit of our rebellion. Discrete racism is simply separation for the purpose of peace. What Peter's doing, right? It'll just be a whole lot easier if we just separate. It'll be more, more peaceful. It'll be less chaotic. There'll be less headaches this way. But it has no place in the church. The gospel cripples racism. It takes us in all of our diversity, all of our differentness, and it brings us to the foot of the same cross. It brings salvation to the Jew in the same way it does to the Greek, to the African in the same way as it does to the Asian, as it does to the Caucasian. But the gospel also redeems these differences and celebrates them through the reconciling work that the cross accomplishes. So at Providence, we need to reflect on this. Racism and sexism and those sorts of things, they're not just social issues that are out there. Paul is saying in Galatians 3, they're issues the church has to be concerned about. They're gospel issues. They're issues Jesus addresses in the cross. So how do we reflect that? How do we reflect Galatians 3.28? Well, there's... A lot of ways, a ton of ways, and a lot of them are way out of my expertise. I don't know all the ways. I'm a white dude that grew up around a bunch of Dutch people. Here are some things I think. Celebrating interracial marriage, that is a way we proclaim to the world the gospel 
redeems, and beautifully unites differences. It holds them up and says, these two people, male and female, that's different enough, right? Man and woman. Different skin colors, different cultures. In all their differences, they reflect Christ and the church. They reflect the gospel. Here's a really clear one from our text. What does the gospel do? The gospel shows us I am now adopted as God's child. The gospel also shows us there's equal access to Christ. doesn't matter who you are, where you come from, what you speak, how much money you make. You get to Jesus. You get saved the same way. Let's put those together. You can celebrate the gospel's redemptive work and diversity through interracial adoption. Knowing that there's people who, who suffer because they live in a certain country, because they're a minority that's persecuted, and saying, I'm intentionally going to adopt a child from that environment and bestow upon them the goodness of God's love, raise them in a home where they understand and know and hear who Jesus is. When we acknowledge the history of our communities, and we reach out to places like Forest Avenue, seeking to reconcile the divide that occurred, when we, when we think not just about how, man, those schools in KCMO are terrible. Did you hear about how they lost their accreditation? When we think back and recognize part of the reason schools here are better, part of the reason our property values reflect the school districts we live in, is because we ran away from helping them. That's a big one. <laughs> I, I don't totally know how Providence enters in and helps with that one. We proclaim the gospel's power to redeem diversity when we acknowledge and fight systematic prejudice, when we push back against injustice. We act in step with the gospel, as Paul puts it, when we share our homes with international students, when we're intentional to reach out to people who've come thousands of miles to study in our backyard, and we proclaim to them Christ. We make Christ beautiful when by faith... We extend ourselves outside of our comfort zones for the sake of the kingdom. Now, faith admits diversity can be messy. But it sees the glory of God expressed in our equality in Christ as worth the risk. Faith celebrates that we are sons of God. That we are united with Christ. And that it has nothing to do with racial, social, or sexual status. We boast only in the cross and we recognize that our maleness or our whiteness or our wealth have no bearing on our image bearing and nothing to do with the access we have to the blessings of Christ that are ours by faith. The symmetry of Paul's logic is above reproach. In the first Adam, sin infects and sexual and racial and social dysfunction rain. It's broken. One book on sin writes the title Not the Way It's Supposed to Be. That's what happens because of the first Adam. But through Christ, the second Adam, as Paul argues, the true seed of Abraham, the nations and the classes and the sexes are all made children of the same family. The glory of our union with Christ is not merely individual. Our union with Christ is individual, but it's not merely individual. It's also corporate and broadly inclusive. Making people from every tribe and tongue and nation Abraham's true seed and laboring to proclaim to them that they too can be heirs according to the promise so long as they entrust themselves to the true heir, Jesus. Would you bow your heads? Lord, there are 
backgrounds and, and burdens and, and all sorts of things that everyone in this room brings to a topic like this. Lord, there are people in this room who have been hurt. Hurt through the fallenness of sexism. Hurt through the fallenness of being treated as less human or less dignified because they have less money. And there are people who have been hurt because they were treated as less of an image bearer because of the way their skin looks is the language that is native to them. And Lord, some of us are just oblivious to, to the part we might play in some of that. But God, you see it all perfectly clearly. You know and judge our hearts. And you are a good, all-knowing, all-wise, and all-gracious God. So Lord, we thank you for the hope that we can take all of this messiness and chaos, all the trepidation that often comes from these subjects, and we can bring them to the foot of the cross. And we can rejoice that at the cross, we are all part of your family. We are all your children. And that because of the cross, through faith, we are united with Jesus. Jesus, who doesn't have a sexist, racist bone in his body. Jesus who loves perfectly. Jesus who redeems every ounce of diversity for your glory. And that in our union with him we have hope. Hope that you are a God who redeems. Hope that you are a God who has always been at work amidst all the chaos and all the brokenness to save a people from every tribe and nation and tongue for your glory. That we would all be children of the King. That we would all be heirs. That we would all know the benefits of Christ. So God, I ask that you would help us at Providence. Help us to never lose sight that the cross is our starting point in this tangled way forward. And Lord, help us to see, help us to be convicted, help us to know what does it look like to apply the gospel in our context, to live in step with it. In the name of Jesus. Amen.